0: This is the Tudors Dynasty podcast, and now Rebecca Larson. A brief history is a supplemental episode of the Tudors Dynasty podcast. On this episode, we welcome back Adrian Dillard. Adrian is the author of *The Raven's Widow*, a novel of Jane Boleyn. Jane Boleyn is best known as the sister-in-law of Anne Boleyn and the woman who was executed because of the downfall of Catherine Howard. Today, Adrian is here to deliver the truth about Jane Blynn. Jane
1: Parker was born sometime during 1504 or 1505 to Henry Parker, Lord Morley, and his wife, Alice St. John. Most historians have placed her early years in Great Hallenbury, but recent scholarship suggests that Jane was much older by the time her family came into possession of the manor there and she more likely spent her childhood at another of Morley's Essex properties. In addition to Jane, Henry and Alice Parker had at least four other children, Henry, Margaret, Francis, and Elizabeth. Jane's first official appearance at court is recorded in March 1522, when she portrayed the womanly virtue of constancy during the Shrove Tide festivities. Her future sisters-in-law, Anne and Mary Boleyn, performed in the pageant as well, taking on the roles of perseverance and kindness. Historian Julia Fox speculates that Jane joined the service of Catherine of Aragon much earlier, and that the mistress Parker noted as attending the queen at the Field of Cloth of Gold in June 1520 was her. Marriage negotiations between Jane's father and Thomas Boleyn began at some point before October 4, 1524, when they signed the jointure for her marriage to Thomas's son, George. This was an ideal match. George was the sole heir of an affluent family on the rise— like the Morleys, the Boleyns prized education in intellectual pursuits, and, by all accounts, George was clever, witty, and charming. He was also highly intelligent and creative, going on to produce remarkable poetry and several translations. The King favored the Union, contributing half of the staggering 2,000-mark jointure and gifting the couple with the manner of Grimston. When exactly the marriage took place is unknown, but it must have occurred between the signing of the legal documents in autumn 1524 and the end of 1525 when George is referred to in the Eltham Ordinances as having a wife. While the ordinances took George out of the privileged environs of the privy chamber, demoting him to mere cupbearer, it wasn't long before the king's favor returned. Less than a year later, his sister Anne attracted the attentions of the monarch and the rest of the Boleyn family benefited as a result. These benefits extended to Jane as well. During the New Year celebrations of 1528, she began receiving gifts from the king in her own name, and in 1529 she was made Viscountess Rochford when her husband was promoted to the title. After his brush with the sweat in 1528, George was given keepership of the Beaulieu estate a valuable perquisite lost by his brother-in-law, William Carey, after his own unsuccessful battle with the dreaded disease. These favors continued during the ensuing divorce trials, when King Henry rented a house at Greenwich for the couple so they could be near Anne as the legal proceedings dragged on. For the next three years, Boleyn power grew to its zenith. In 1532, Jane accompanied the royal couple on a visit to Calais, where she took a leading role in the court entertainments to celebrate peace talks between Henry VIII and the French King Francis I. Their triumphant return culminated in an event long in the making, a private ceremony uniting Anne and Henry in marriage. Soon after, or even possibly in the months before, as no one knows for sure whether the wedding took place in November or the following January, Anne fell pregnant and hopes were high for a prince. Plans moved forward for a grand coronation. Much has been made about a supposed rift between Jane and her sister-in-law, often cited to explain Jane's hand in the fall of Anne and George, but there isn't much evidence to support the theory. From the start, Jane appears to have been a close confidante, borne out by the privileged position she took in Anne's coronation procession. Riding directly behind the royal litter, after Anne's chamberlain and master of the horse, Jane came before any of the other women in the Boleyn family, and higher than her rank entitled her. Later events would show that Anne trusted Jane with the secrets of her intimate relationship with the king. Jane and her husband rubbed along well during this time, though George was often away on diplomatic missions, working hard to get Henry his divorce. It is these enduring absences, perhaps combined with fertility issues, that are most likely to blame for the couple's lack of children, as there are no reports of discord in the marriage until long after they were disgraced. An entry in the Miscellanea Genealogica et Heraldic further indicates that George had the trust of the Parker family as well. Highly regarded by the younger Henry Parker, George was named godfather to his daughter, Alice, born in October 1534. Though the couple never had children of their own, they were granted the wardship of 12-year-old Edmund Sheffield. As 1534 drew to a close, Jane became embroiled in her first scandal. As the imperial ambassador Chapuis reported, she became involved in a conspiracy to quarrel with another woman at court who had caught the king's attention. It is not clear who all was involved, but it was Jane who was punished when the plan backfired. The fact that Jane put herself at such great risk for Anne speaks volumes as to the strength of their relationship. Where she spent her exile is unknown, but it was short-lived, and by the spring of 1535 she was back at court. For years, historians have blamed this incident for inciting Jane's resentment towards her Boleyn family, insisting that Jane later participated in a protest at Greenwich in support of Princess Mary. As her biographer, Julia Fox, points out, the evidence for this is tenuous at best, and had Jane been amongst the ladies sent to the Tower, there is no doubt it would have also been reported by the eagle-eyed ambassador. Upon her return to court, Jane adopted a scholar, funding the education of William Foster in his studies at King's College, Cambridge. Anne continued in her role as queen, but her influence increasingly diminished as her pregnancies proved fruitless. The birth of Elizabeth in 1533 had not been enough to cement her place in the king's graces— As the Boleyns increasingly lost ground, Jane continued to provide support to Anne, resurfacing in a March 1536 report by the Bishop of Faenza. The bishop said only Anne's sister had been allowed to attend upon the tragic stillbirth of Anne's child the month before. With Mary still firmly banished from court, the only sister he could have met was Jane. At some point during these early months of 1536, Anne confided in Jane that the king suffered from episodes of impotence. As it would later be revealed during George's trial, Jane shared those fears with her husband. In May, Jane's world was upended with the arrests of her husband, sister-in-law, and six other men of the court, four of whom would die on the scaffold alongside George and Anne. While the rest of the court abandoned the Boleyn children to their fate, it was Jane who reached out, sending a message of comfort and promises to sue the king's pardon on his behalf. If Jane was in fact able to speak to the king, her efforts were unsuccessful, and her husband died on Tower Hill on May 17. Her sister-in-law followed two days later. Jane has often been accused of giving evidence accusing the Bolin siblings of incest, but there is no evidence of this whatsoever, other than repeated hearsay from tainted sources coming centuries after Jane's death. Furthermore, there are no records that Jane was even interrogated. With no witnesses produced at the trials, only Lady Worcester, Nan Cobham, and a third unnamed woman are listed as accusers, with Lady Wingfield mentioned as giving a deathbed confession. George died branded a traitor, and as such his goods were forfeit to the crown. Jane was subjected to a humiliating inventory of her possessions and forbidden from public mourning. Because Jane's lands were still under the legal ownership of George's grandmother, Thomas Boleyn elected instead to pay her an annuity, but this was still less than the amount she was due. Jane was allowed to retain the title of Viscountess, but it required her to live in greater style than her allowance afforded, so she was forced to enlist the help of Thomas Cromwell and the king. She returned to court under the new queen, Jane Seymour, where she served as Lady of the Bedchamber. With the death of Henry's third queen, Jane spent a brief interlude at home at Bickling, finding time to negotiate a property transaction with her former father-in-law that resulted in her acquisition of two manors in her own right— via a private act of Parliament, personally signed by the King. Soon after, she was back at court serving his fourth wife, Anna of Cleves. The union was short-lived, with an annulment completed less than a year later, necessitating Jane's placement in the household of Anna's successor, Catherine Howard. It was in this role that Jane would come to be known as That Bod, the infamous Lady Rochford. As first lady of the bedchamber, Jane was by Catherine's side as the court wound its way through the northern progress. At some point along the way, she became an accessory to the queen's assignations with one of the king's closest servants, Thomas Culpepper. Upon their return, an investigation was launched in response to a flippant remark by Mary Lascelles, a maid who grew up alongside Catherine in the household of the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, regarding the queen's light behaviour. Initially, the inquiry centered on the relationships Catherine had in the past with Henry Mannix and Francis Darham. But the interrogations broadened when Derham asserted that the Queen's affections had shifted from him to Culpepper. When Culpepper was hauled in for questioning, he was quick to point the finger of blame at Jane, as was Catherine. Though it is true Jane coordinated the secret meetings between the Queen and Culpepper, it is unclear whether she was a willing witness or enforced participant. With the tragic fate of her husband and his sister fresh in her mind, it's hard to believe Jane would have put herself in such danger willingly. What may have started out as a small errand for the Queen likely spun beyond her control. By this point, Cromwell was gone, so Jane may have felt she had no one to intercede for her, and speaking up could have proved just as dangerous as it would have been her word against the Queen's. Regardless of Jane's choice in the matter, she was held culpable, and found herself in the tower alongside her mistress and the accused men. Three days into her incarceration, it was reported that she fell to madness and was removed to Lord Russell's house to be nursed back to health. Once she was deemed mentally fit, both she and Catherine Howard were sentenced to die by act of attainder without benefit of a trial. Three days before her execution, she was brought back to the Tower to await punishment. Determined to see her die, yet uncertain Jane had been entirely healed, Henry Eighth pushed forward an act of Parliament changing the law forbidding him from executing the mentally unstable. On the morning of February 13, 1542, Jane Parker Boleyn, Lady Rochford, was executed alongside Queen Catherine Howard. Though she has often been accused of confessing to false testimony against her husband on the scaffold, the eyewitness accounts of London merchant Otwell Johnson bears out the truth. Jane made no further comments beyond the standard scaffold speech and went calmly to her death, just as George and Anne had done a mere six years before.
0: And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. You can find my show notes from this episode and how to become a patron at tutorsdynastypodcast.com. Don't want to miss an episode? Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Patreon, or Podbean. Intro and outro music called Folk Round by Kevin MacLeod and Competech.com. Creative Commons license via filmmusic.io. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at tutorsdynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.